0: The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi, folks. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast, all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out Anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out Anchor.fm.
1: Come with me. See
0: To the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight we're going to explore the Hermetic Science of Motion and Number once again. This is part six of the series, and we're actually going into lesson number seven because, as I explained on the last episode, uh, lesson five within this book was actually covered on a previous broadcast called Pythagoras and the Music of the Spheres. So we jumped ahead just one lesson from where we were in the number series here and that's why this is number six part six of the hermetic science of motion and number lesson seven and tonight we're going to explore the idea of the rhythm of mind so when we get into this you'll see that there's many ideas outlined here that could have quite a bit of importance if they are understood to be fundamentally true Uh, That's the whole key here. Is this fundamentally true? Well, uh, these hermetic sciences have stood the test of time and have held up time and again through the rigors of various ways of analyzing things. And we have been kind of caught up in the modern paradigm here wherein we think in terms of our strictly scientific viewpoint, the scientific method. And the scientific method is just one method for analyzing data and that's the problem because it's been adopted wholesale as the only method of analyzing data and that's not an accurate way to look at the world because it misses a lot of things the scientific method can only validate those things that are quantifiable and measurable in an objective way and so much of our reality is based on the experiential or the subjective that it makes it nearly impossible to rely solely on that premise. You see, essentially, we have many mysteries that uh, abound our world that we live in, things that the human being just can't get a full grasp of. There's supernatural phenomena, there's preternatural phenomena, and, of course, natural phenomena that are all very much not understood by mankind at large. We have limited knowledge of these things, and our experience of these things sometimes validates more of these hermetic principles than the modern scientific method of things. So that being the case, it's a valuable area of expertise and information here to explore. It's, it's valuable to take this into your repertoire of various ways of analyzing things in this world we need to have our objective viewpoints and look at things from the scientific method of observation yes but we also need to be understanding of the more subjective or philosophical way of looking at things as well because this has just as much value as the scientific way if not even more so because these things tug right at what it is what the core of what it is to be human, the experience of being a human being. So to better understand our lot in this place, we need to explore these ideas and keep them on equal footing and equal merit with the things in the modern paradigm that have been accepted as the settled science, which is an oxymoron in and of itself, there's no such thing as settled science. (laughs) That's the opposite of how science is done. Uh, So that being the case, whenever somebody tells you the science is settled, well, they are not speaking in the true terms of what scientific method and scientific observation really is. There's no such thing as settled science. So uh, this viewpoint offers a different alternative for analyzing the operational aspects of the world. So this is an important thing to get into. So without further ado, let's get into Lesson 7, The Rhythm of Mind. The law of rhythm reigns in the world of mind quite as much as in the world of life. The only difference, in fact, between the two being that the mental vibration is on a higher plane than that of life. Life, or prana is on the astral octave well manas or mind is upon the mental octave the lowest mental vibration is therefore one step higher than the highest vibration on the astral plane and i'm going to pause for a moment here folks remember the breakdown we've done on what these various secret society groups teach about the organization the hierarchical structure of these various interconnecting invisible worlds in which we exist in conjunction with the physical world that we're all familiar with here, this material world that we're all familiar with. It is claimed by these groups that there are actually seven different layers of these interconnecting worlds. It's a septenary type setup, as they say. And they, they overlap at various areas. So they're talking about here the... Astral plane. Now on the last lesson we did here, they were speaking of the rhythm of life, and life exists in the vital world or the the world of feeling, if you want to get in that sense of it, emotion, the emotional strata of things. So this is one step up from the physical plane here into that one. And then an order of magnitude above that. And as the author A.S. Raleigh describes it here, it's an octave. And this is an important idea to keep in mind, too. An octave above that is the mental plane through which we're talking about here tonight. So an octave up from where we are in the physical plane would be considered the vital world or where the vital body exists. And then a step above that is where mind resides, an octave above that. So we're talking two octaves up from where we are, and and this is an allegorical representation of how this works, as described by the secret society groups and the mystery school teachings of old. So we have these interpenetrating invisible worlds, and they're connected through various forms of frequency or vibration. This is how it's always been described, and I know it sounds kind of new-agey and nonsensical, but the hermetic thought patterns have always been there underscoring these things, and there are demonstrable ways to show that there may be some validity to this. Uh, One of those ways being the use of a science called cymatics, which is largely lost to us today, but was being explored in the late 1800s and early 1900s by many people within and outside of these secret society groups. So this would be an important way to maybe be able to suss out some of the, the points in which these things may have some form of validity or, or provable type aspects to them. Uh, so at any rate, it's important to keep this in mind. So they speak in terms of frequency, vibration, and Nikola Tesla even advised us, if we want to better understand how the world works, to think in terms of frequency and vibration. I think this is more of an allegorical sense of things. This frequency and vibration notion, I think perhaps in these other invisible worlds, these next level planes, these steps up, these octaves above us, it may not necessarily translate as what we would call frequency or think of as frequency here in the physical world, but it's the best allegory they have available to describe it to our limited understanding here. So that's why I think these terms were used I don't think it's a literal sound wave or something like that, per se. And I reserve the right to be totally wrong about that. But, you know, at any rate, it's it's a philosophical way of thinking, okay? it's It's using allegory or using the connotation that's given to us through comparisons in this way, you see. And this is an important thing to keep in mind whenever we're talking about any of these occult topics. Most of the time, what's being described is not the literal interpretation of what you're hearing coming forward with it. You have to think in symbolic language in order to understand. That's why they use things like allegory to represent something else. You see, that's the way that it works. They, they use these different kinds of comparisons, allegories and similes and metaphors and things like that to represent ideas in the best way possible so people could understand the concept because it's more about the concept than the actual physical mechanics thereof and you know I use the term physical mechanics quite loosely because when you're talking about other realms of existence physical mechanics do not apply there in the same way they do here. There would be some correlating principle there that would relate to physical mechanics here but uh, this is, like I said, this is the way that it works. You have to use allegorical-type references to get there. So that's what they've done with a lot of this language. So when you hear them speaking like this, it sounds all new-agey and nonsensical and like, uh, you know, peace, love, and flowers and, you know, <laughs> that that kind of thing. Loving vibrations and, yeah, um, all that garbage. But uh, that's not what was intended through these teachings, okay? It's to give you an accurate mental picture of what's being described here in the best way we possibly could explain with our limited understanding. Because we're used to sensing the world through our five physical senses here, and these things pertain to different realms where those senses don't apply. So how do you describe something in terms of a sense that we don't have, you see? So it has to be presented to us in a way where we can understand the concept. So that's what many of these writers have done. And this is one of the difficult parts about translating some of these old natural sciences and and alchemical sciences, is they often, some of the principles are hard to attain at the physical level here. It's hard to understand what's being said, unless you could think in terms of the allegorical, you see, or in the context of symbology. So that's what's being presented when we talk about this stuff. When we're hearing vibration, don't think of it as a literal, literal vibration. And, you know, there there are some actual uh, things that back up the idea of tone or frequency having an important effect on the human body and such. And not to discredit any of that. I certainly don't intend to discredit any of that. That's, you know, a relative truth. But I don't think it's the same type thing as what we're thinking. Uh, so... As I always caution when we do these readings, you have to take a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt because many of the things cannot be proven or disproven outright. So you have to take it all in and see if it aligns with what your experience is and what your own research tells you. Don't take anything I say ever as an absolute fact or truth. Look it up yourself. Uh, You know, get your own observations involved, and your own experiences involved, and make a judgment based upon what your experience is and what you can find for yourself, what you can prove to yourself to be true or not true. We're all fallible human beings, and I'm no exception, so, uh, you know, I've, I've been wrong before, and I'll openly admit that, and when I am wrong, I will usually make the good judgment call to publicly acknowledge I was wrong and make a correction. So, That being the case, I think we all need to do that. This is part of the learning process, you see. And that's why it's important that we look at these different ideas and learn about as many different observation points of this world we live in as possible. So it's valuable information at any rate. But enough of my side trailing and side tangenting. Let's get back into the reading here. The student must grasp the idea of mind separate and apart from thought. Mind is the material out of which thoughts are formed. Mind is universally diffused throughout space in the same way as the ether, prana, and astral matter. It is therefore a form of energy and not merely thought. The rhythm of mind governs all the activities of this mind stuff. When the atoms of the inner akasha or buddhi i.e. the cosmic energy, begin to vibrate in accordance with the rhythm of mind. They are drawn together and held by cohesion, thus forming the ultimate mental atom, the unit of all mind stuff. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. The mind atom, the ultimate mental atom. You see, they describe things throughout these various secret society groups in very similar fashion, a lot of ways here. They have an absolute core particle that everything equates down to, that they call this ultimate atom. You see, it's the smallest possible manifestation here and elsewhere in in the given plane here, and they equate this back through all the different levels. There's an ultimate etheric atom, an ultimate astral atom, and here we're hearing about the ultimate mental atom. They all correlate and correspond together. This relates back to one of the other hermetic principles, the, the hermetic principle of correspondence. So all these things correspond or reflect one another through these various levels. And this is no different. And this is where the idea of the physical atom came from back in ancient Greek philosophy when they were first considering the idea of atoms and the atomistic philosophy or approach to analyzing the world. Fundamental particles. And the world does certainly have fundamental particles, no doubt about it. Uh, so that being the case, you know, there's a core there of something true. But at the same token, like everything else, it's been totally misconstrued and inverted by our modern sciences and by modern thought forms here. So they t- they've taken the idea of the atom and they've tried to apply it across the board to everything, this philosophy of atomism where they break everything down into being fundamental particles and they've even applied this to energy and the energy sciences this this is the whole uh premise of quantum everything quantum everything's a particle everything's interactions of a particle when that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny or observation here and they can't make it work the only way they make these things work is by applying advanced mathematical theories to it and making it fit in through the mathematical formula, and accounting for it in some way. So many of the ways which they've done so is through the advent of things like uh, what Einstein called in his calculations, the cosmological constant. What later the quantum scientists and various others would call dark matter and dark energy, because, well, it's not really there, but, you know, the math says it kind of has to be there in order to you know, for our observation of what our worldview is to work. There has to be something there to make it work. We couldn't possibly be wrong. Our model couldn't possibly be wrong. There has to be something else there. So they apply the mathematics in that way, and they put something there that's not really there to make it work and look good on paper. But it doesn't align with reality. And this is the problem with quantum. Everything quantum, as well as, you know, the relativistic theories. Things don't operate in the way we're told, folks. And I think they operate more closely in accordance with some of these older natural sciences or alchemical sciences. That's why it's important to explore these topics and ideas. Sometimes we come across some really good information. So we need to be able to use our judgment and our own discernment to figure out what's correct and what's incorrect. I like to report directly to you from their own words and their own writings in many of these cases and i will give my own personal observations to these things and like anyone else i'm i'm subject to my biases so if you don't agree with me on something that's all well and good the world would be pretty boring if we all agreed all the time Uh, so that's fine you have to analyze and use your discernment through your own observations and your own learnings and that's what it's all about but i like to present these things in the words that they give themselves through these secret society groups, these secret teachings of the ages, as they like to call them, and tell you what it is that they believe, what they teach within these secret society groups, and this is what they believe and act upon. So even if you think that it's total nonsense... Keep in mind there's people in positions of power in this world that very much believe these things and the things they do to act upon these principles will affect all of us in some way, shape, or form. So it's important to understand what are their motivations, what are their goals, what are their agendas that align with these ideas, why does the world look the way it does, and how come we lack so many answers when we have those that claim to have all the scientific answers to things. You see, they have a remedy for everything, just ready and waiting for all these problems that arise. Understand? They have the remedy. All we have to do is obey them and listen to them and give up some of our sovereignty to them and allow them to do our thinking for us and lead us. This is problematic, folks. It doesn't align with the natural sciences. So... With that being said, enough of my little side tangent there. We were talking about the ultimate mental atom where we left off here in the reading. So let's continue on here. The mental octave is composed of seven notes governing the seven subplanes of its vibratory activity. All mental vibration is on one of these subplanes and is governed by one of these notes. A thought is an organism, a mental electron, so to speak, formed by the union of a number of the ultimate mental atoms, governed by the same rate of vibration, giving to the thought itself this particular vibration. A compound thought is a mental atom formed by the union of a number of simple thought electrons, governed by a chord peculiar to them all, a complex thought is a mental molecule formed by the union of several compound thought atoms governed by a single keynote. A thought form is a body of unorganized mind stuff ensouled by a thought. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, as you can see, even those members of these secret society groups and these occult fraternities and various organizations that teach these old mystery school teachings in natural sciences alchemical sciences, if you will, even they are not immune to the modern ideology that's been presented that is called the philosophy of atomism, the atomistic viewpoint, the viewpoint wherein everything has to be broken down into a fundamental particle. And you see how they've even applied that here to the idea of thought forms and thoughts themselves. They're actually calling them atoms and molecules, a thought molecule. Really? (laughs) So, this is the thing. So, uh, even these occultists in these various secret groups are not immune to this modern spell that's been cast upon man, where everything has to relate to some kind of a fundamental particle or interaction of fundamental particles. You see, even though this has never been adequately proven... Now, you know, you could argue, yes, there's atoms. We could, uh, you know, see atoms through various tools, electron microscopes, and things of that nature, right? Well, what are they based upon? Like, what, what did they build these models upon? They look totally different on paper as to how they would present in reality. In fact, the idea of the electron, well, this is just a unit of measurement, essentially, when you go through the electrical sciences, It's a unit of measurement. It's a unit of electrical charge that uh, can be used to formulate different capacities or or electrical loads on things. It's not really been observed as a moving particle under a microscope or something. Electrons have never been observed. It's not an actual observable particle. It's just a measurement. It's a man-made contrivance to explain... The uh, electrical function of something. Now, it is a charge. That is a correct way to, to view it, but it's not really a particle. It's a, a measure. hasn't been observed as a particle. It can be measured in other ways. And observed in other ways, but it's never been seen. So the, all those little pictures that you see of an atom, those drawings in the textbooks where they show you, well they, these are protons and these are neutrons, and this little thing flying around in this orbit outside of that, that's an electron. If you actually get into deeper study of the physical sciences, you find out that these electrons actually, uh, in chemistry and such, are presented as shells. It's, it's a shell surrounding the, uh, the nucleus of the atom. It's not really a particle flying around the way it's presented to you, you see. And it hasn't been observed under a microscope. You can't physically look at an atom under a microscope in this way and see the little electron flying around it and the little protons and neutrons in the center. That's not how that works. It's just a blurry blob. <laughs> That's what it is. So... It, this is the thing. Many of these things have been so misdescribed to us that, uh, you know, it's, it's really a shame. We think in all the wrong ways. So are there fundamental particles of a sort? Yes, I would say that's probably a truth. It's a pretty basic thing that's understood. But are these really the things that formulate what happens in the operation of this world? Do they really work how we're told? That's, that's the bigger question. I think there's more to it than that. and That's why exploring this stuff is, you know, interesting. But even the occultists you see that uh, teach these various things are not unaffected by these types of modern thought forms that have come forward, ironically enough, in discussing their own ideas of what thought forms are. So they'll describe them as fundamental atoms within these different things now there are some things here that you know really hold true like the idea of the keynote and this is a hugely important idea as we get a little further through here but uh, let's continue reading each thought has a definite rate of vibration is in fact the result of that vibration hence it follows that there are as many thoughts as there are vibrations on the mental plane the same vibration will in all cases organize the same thought The more gross thoughts occupy the lower notes of the octave, while the other and finer ones are governed by the higher notes. The higher the rate of vibration is, the higher will be the quality of the thought, and vice versa. In order that thought may manifest itself to the physical consciousness, it must have a physical medium to offer the necessary resistance to enable it to manifest itself. The brain has been provided for that purpose. It is in this sense that the brain is the organ of the mind. The brain is composed of tissue so organized as to offer the necessary resistance to thought vibration and to nothing else. It is in this way that the mind is enabled to function through the brain. going to pause for a moment here, folks. And this is another important idea. The mind is enabled to function through the brain. The brain and the mind are not equals. You see, they are not equal things. The brain, for lack of a better analogy here, is the radio tuner. And the mind would be the signal that the tuner can tune in. So we have this coherence. And this is an important idea, so mind and brain are not equivalent, although our physical sciences and our physical hypermaterialist materialist worldview has taught us to think of mind being the brain, nothing more than the activity of the brain, the physical electrical activity of the brain. So that is a misnomer, and I think that was well understood by these older natural sciences and these old philosophies. So let's continue reading. As the various rates of mental vibration, expressing themselves in the form of corresponding thoughts, may be grouped into classes, each class or vibration resulting in a corresponding class of thoughts, even so may all thoughts be divided into classes. The point which the student must bear in mind is that thoughts of a certain class or quality all have the same vibratory note. In a word, character of thought is the result of a corresponding vibratory note, hence thoughts having the same general character have also the same note of vibration. In order that this class of thoughts may be generated, there must be a quantity of brain tissue adapted to the expression of such vibration. In other words, unless there is some part of the brain adapted to the vibration in such a way as to offer to it the requisite degree of resistance, it will be impossible for that vibration to manifest itself as a thought. These different classes of thoughts with their different vibratory notes constitute the diverse faculties of the mind. And I'm going to pause for another moment here, folks. Ever wonder why some people get it and some don't? Well, this is explaining why if uh, perhaps the way has not been carved, so to say, for their brain to accept the thought form, it's not going to be there, <laughs> you see. And, and how do we do this? They don't ever explain that. They don't ever explain how the, the brain just etches the right, I don't know, frequency pattern or something to let these thoughts manifest. They don't really explain that. I think it's poorly understood, even by these old natural sciences. And occultists, as much as it is misunderstood by our modern sciences. So let's read on. As each faculty must have a quantity of the brain matter specially adapted to the expression of its particular vibratory note, in order that it may manifest in thought, it follows that different parts of the brain must be assigned to the diverse faculties with special adaptation to their special notes of vibration. This is the real foundation of the functional areas of the brain. Going to pause for another moment here, folks. So our modern science breaks down the brain into its various constituent parts. The occult sciences have done very much the same thing from time immemorial. They understood things about the brain and the mind that our modern sciences still today haven't caught up to, at least in the public view, behind closed doors and, you know, the secret projects, parts of the world, the special access programs. I'm sure they understand a little better some of the workings of the mind and apply some of these different older philosophies to those types of uh, projects. But let's read on. As a section of the brain becomes adapted to a particular vibratory cord, it is for that very reason unfitted for the manifestation of any other cord. For the above reason, the existence of definite sections of the brain for each faculty of the mind is absolutely necessary. If the same quality of matter prevailed throughout the brain, there could only one faculty operate, namely that whose vibrations were governed by the same cord to which the brain itself was keyed. Phrenology is, therefore, the only possible basis of psychology. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So phrenology is, therefore, the only possible basis of psychology. So carving up the brain and looking at the physical parts of it is the only way to understand psychology, according to that statement. I don't think that's correct. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, uh, this this is where they mix in a, a lot of how should we say, uh, information that's not as helpful as as other information. This is where they, they begin to misconstrue certain things, ideologies. And it's from this, observations like this, wherein we get some of our modern scientific viewpoints and the misnomers that are presented in them. You see, it's a misunderstanding of what's been taught here. It's missing the point of the whole allegory and taking it in a literal sense. That's what's been done here. So when they say phrenology is therefore the only possible basis of psychology, that would be the physical structures of the brain. I don't think that's true. I think it's, if you understand it in a philosophical type of a a mindset, you'll understand, yes, different parts of the brain function in different ways, But the physical structure thereof does not necessarily define what is thought, what is human reason, what is human mental wellness, right? So this is not an accurate statement in a physical sense, but people have misconstrued it and made it so. That's why, that's one of the major reasons why they try to equate everything to a physical process in the body or the brain, these different ideas of consciousness, you see. So they've, they've misconstrued this idea, turned it into something that's a hyper-materialist viewpoint of sorts, and adapted the ways that they look at it from there. Now, one is just a reflection of the other. This physical is a reflection of the otherworldly aspect of mind. So the physical brain is a reflection of the otherworldly manifestation of the mind. One reflects the other. So you can understand something about the mind by understanding something about the brain, and vice versa. But the problem is, when you equate them to the same one structure, that's not necessarily the case, you see. I will once again invoke the analogy of the radio tuner. Just because the radio tuner is broken doesn't mean the signal is broken as well, or lost. You see, Uh, so these two things can be only correlated to a certain degree. And it's an imperfect analogy, so we'll try not to take it too far. But it's the best way to think about it, in my view, as far as understanding what consciousness is. Consciousness being the consubstantiation between spirit and form or mind and form. You see, as described by these various occult organizations and secret society groups, this is how they view it. The strength of a faculty is determined by the length of the brain fiber, the fiber running from the brain cells to the brain center, and return forms the circuit over which the mental impulse must pass in order to make the connection of cells, and thus realize itself in a thought, corresponding to the impulse in the rate of vibration, and therefore being that impulse expressed in form. The length of the brain fiber determines the strength and power of the thought. It is for this reason that phrenologists count the strength of a faculty according to the distance of the surface of its brain area from the brain center, thus securing a fair estimate of the length of the brain fiber. This is what is meant by the relative size of an organ vis-a-vis the length of its brain fiber and the consequent length of the mental circuit, which the impulse must make in forming the connection in order to become a thought. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Bear in mind, this book was written over a hundred years ago. So I think many of the physical descriptions he's giving here of brains and brain fibers and stuff like that and how they correlate to or correspond to thoughts and, you know, the the mental images are largely incorrect. <laughs> I think this stuff has been largely proven incorrect as far as some of the physical description here. Uh, so keep that in mind. So is he talking about something truly physical, or is this an allegory or a reference, a, uh, a way of showing an idea, maybe perhaps in some etheric-type portion of the body or something, uh, you know, the manifestation thereof? Is this something that's being talked about as far as uh, an etheric type way of seeing it, or in the astral, as they they like to take the word of their clairvoyance on this stuff, and this is the kind of things they observe in those other invisible worlds. Perhaps he's not describing what actually happens here on this physical plane that we are familiar with. Perhaps he's describing something going on in one of these other invisible realms, that uh, plays a part here or perhaps he's totally off base and totally wrong and really foundationally believed that to be true that uh, the length of brain fibers uh, would determine the quality of thought you see uh, th- this kind of an idea of of correlating or corresponding the uh, the quality or uh, value of a thought based upon the the brain fibers or the the uh, the brain matter, I don't think holds true. I, I think it's still a mystery. Today was a mystery to them. Then still a mystery now. What makes thought valuable? What makes a a good thought? What makes a bad thought? Right? These are all things that are discussed in these philosophical treatises, but uh, oftentimes they're still poorly understood. So, and and even by these these people that have taught, brought forward these occult teachings from. Very ancient times, they throw in a little bit of their modern take on things, and sometimes they're totally wrong, you see. And I think that's what we're observing here in this teaching right there, as far as the correlation between the physical structure of the brain and the mind and how it works. But let's continue reading, because there is some value to be garnered in this for certain. In order that the mental impulse may express itself in thought there must be a brain fiber of such quality as to respond to the vibration set up by the impulse of the mind and offer the necessary resistance to enable it to manifest in thought. In a word, unless the fiber has the quality of resistance to the mental impulse, by the overcoming of which the vibration may be carried along the fiber to the cells, it is utterly impossible for the impulse to manifest through this particular fiber. And if there is no such fiber in the entire brain, It will be impossible, in that case, for the impulse to manifest in thought at all. That is why so many of us are limited in the range of thought which we are able to express. It also accounts for the fact that we are constantly haunted with mental impulses which we are utterly unable to express in thought, but which continue to haunt us like the ghosts of ideas. Before these haunting impulses can be expressed in thought, we have to develop brain fiber which is keyed to that particular vibration. This is the real art of brain evolution. <laughs> Sorry folks, I, I gotta laugh at that. This is the real art of brain evolution. See, it's it's about making your brain develop these long enough fibers so that you could understand the thoughts. <laughs> That's great. Uh, let's read on though. This is the real art of brain evolution. By the continual effort to express a certain mental vibration through a brain fiber, we gradually change the quality of the same until it reaches the point where it's sufficiently sensitive to that vibration to offer the requisite resistance to enable it to manifest in the corresponding thought. (laughs) I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Okay, so if you think about it hard enough and long enough, eventually you'll be able to understand your thought. (laughs) That's what this is saying in a nutshell here. Uh, So uh, if you think long enough and hard enough about something, uh, sooner or later your brain fiber will become long enough that the thought can manifest. (laughs) So this is is one of the more nonsensical things I've seen in many of these books. But uh, if you take it at the literal level here, which is what I'm laughing at, when you're you're looking at it in the literal context as it's given it is laughable but when you consider it's probably talking about something else entirely see that's the nature of a lot of these works they're probably talking about the allegorical representation of something that happens perhaps in another one of these layers of the invisible worlds a a type of uh, transmission from one to the next you see and it's not really about the physical size of the brain, making the the thought forms better or growing the the brain well enough so that you can have, you know, more coherent thinking or something like that. That's that's not how it works. But uh, let's read on here. Although the brain fiber may be sufficiently sensitive or rather may be keyed to the proper vibration so as to convey the vibratory impulse to the surface of the brain, yet if the cells are not keyed in the same vibration, the impulse will never be able to express itself in thought. Before this can be done, it is necessary that the cell be first developed to the exact degree of vibratory response where it will express that vibration, This being accomplished, the vibratory impulse passes along the fiber, making the circuit to the surface of the brain, where the cells are brought together. The positive and the negative poles uniting to form the combination necessary to the manifestation of that particular thought vibration in the form of the thought which corresponds to its vibratory value. The entire brain is, therefore, only a complex instrument adapted to the conveying and manifestation of the diverse vibrations arising out of the effort of the mind to express itself in thought. However, without this brain, it would be utterly impossible for the mind to manifest itself in thought, while upon the physical plane... And, in fact, the mind can only act for a brief period of time upon the higher planes of nature when deprived of the physical brain. The whole secret of mental operation, therefore, is based upon the law that all mental action is vibration on the mental octave, that each thought is the effect of a particular vibration, that in order for this particular vibration to manifest as thought, It must have a brain fiber over which to travel, possessing the requisite degree of sensitivity to afford the resistance to convey it to the surface, and that it must there find a combination of cells adapted to the same rate of vibration through which it may be able to manifest itself as thought, corresponding to the vibration which organized it. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Boy, this sounds like a lot of work for the (laughs) the cells involved, doesn't it? (laughs) <laughs> the brain, it's, it's got to form all these fibers and networks and, and bring it to the surface. And then the cells there have to be prepped before a thought can manifest there. It's a wonder we're even here, right? <laughs> anyway, let's read on. Mind is a system of vibration. The brain, with its fibers and cells, is the vibrator, and the thoughts are the organized effect of each particular vibration expressed through the requisite combination of cells. The number of brain cells, therefore, has nothing whatever to do with the range of thought which it is possible to give a given mind. If the cells are all adapted to a certain range of vibration, they can only express those vibrations in thought. All others either above or below that range will be beyond the reach of such brain activity. Going to pause again for a moment, folks. How do they know that? <laughs> let me let me just ask the obvious questions here. How do these occultists and these old philosophers know that? Have they ever been able to oh watch the workings of an operating brain, of a living brain while it's it's functioning, and expressing the thoughts that the the mind transmits to it. Like I said, this stuff, a lot of it you have to take with a grain of salt. There's no way to prove nor disprove any of this. And where did these ideas originally come from, you see? You have to wonder that as well, because they've been handed down from very old times well who was the original source and were they telling the truth you see or was it just a fanciful lie which much of our history and science is really uh, you know the, the latter there a fanciful lie which may hold up to a little bit of scrutiny and have some contextual evidence to support it or back it up and it's taught as a truth through time you see Much like, you know, those airplanes hit those buildings on 9-11 and they they fell. All of their own accord, in their own footprint. First time in history, and last time in history, that this happened. You see, due to a plane crashing into this building that was constructed to withstand a plane crashing into it. Uh, So, it's these kind of things that manifest here. It's a lie that's accepted as a truth, you see. Uh, I I could go on all day long about that but that's not the the that's not the motivation of this episode here tonight you see we're we're discussing the hermetic science but this is largely how ideas come to be accepted truths when perhaps there's not the truth being expressed therein. And that's what we get with a lot of this stuff as well. And this is why I say a lot of times there's valuable information there, and there's a core of truth to the things that are taught within these secret schools. But there's always that little bit of poison that taints the well, you see. And we're experiencing quite a bit of that in this lesson here tonight, lesson seven. Let's continue reading, though. The theory, then, of the anthropologists that the breadth and power of the mind is indicated by the size of the brain is absolutely untrue going to pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, once again, he's teaching in paradoxes, as they always acknowledge they will teach in paradoxes. He's contradicting himself. So just before he was stating that it's all about the size and the length of the uh, brain fiber that causes the thought to be able to manifest or the quality of the thought. And now he's saying that the size of the brain does not have anything to do with the power of the mind. You see, you can't have it both ways, folks, and these people try to do it all the time. They admit they teach in paradoxes. They teach lies and misdirections. They teach opposing points of view, and they'll, they'll say it's polarity, and a lot of it is based on polarity principles, and there's something to that. But at the, the end of the day, when you're teaching something like this and you're teaching it in a paradox, well, this should largely tell you it can't possibly be correct Because can something be true and untrue at the same time? You see, is that the nature of how truth works? You have to wonder about these things. But I'll leave that to you to think it through. But let's let's continue reading here. The size of the brain only indicates the raw material which the mind has at its disposal. And it must take this and adapt to it its purpose before it can be of any service. For the purpose of generating thought. The shape of the brain indicates the range of thought with tolerable accuracy because it indicates the length of the brain fiber in a particular portion of the brain and hence the exercise which it has received and therefore the relative activity of the same. And as we know the function of each part of the brain, we are able to tell with tolerable accuracy, accuracy the range of the thought of which the given mind is capable. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. No, they can't. That's an absolute. That's absolute nonsense right there. So they could tell. He's claiming here they could tell by the function of each part of the brain. They could tell with tolerable accuracy what range of thought can be given by a particular mind, what a, what a per, particular person capable of, based upon the brain matter. That is untrue, and that's contradicting himself once again here. So let's continue reading, though. It is not the number of the cells, but their vibratory adaptability, which counts in giving greater range to the thoughts of which the mind is capable. It is merely a matter of rhythm, and as the rhythm is, so will the thoughts be. The real mystery of the intellectual harmony and discord between different people, where there is no apparent cause, really lies in the rhythm of their respective minds. If they harmonize in the rhythm, all will be harmonious between them. If not, all will be discordant. It is merely a case of perfectly natural sympathy or antipathy between the two minds. Neither one is responsible. It is not a question of ethics, but one of mental chemistry. Each mind has a rhythm or keynote peculiar to itself and cannot possibly come into rapport with a mind which is not in harmony with that rhythm. For the same reason it must enter into rapport with any mind that is in harmony with its keynote. This law of mental rhythm explains all of those problems which come under the above heads. This is why the great world of thought, which is all around us, filling the mental plane, does not impress itself upon our consciousness. We can receive and take cognizance only of those thoughts, which have the same rate of vibration as some portion of our brain is able to respond to and by the duplication of the same to express in the mind the same vibration in the form of a thought. This is the sense in which it is true that we can receive only that which we have within ourselves. We can bring into consciousness only the, that thought or idea which has the same rate of vibration as some of our own thoughts and therefore has some portion of our brain fibers and brain cells in order that they may respond to the vibration and thus reproduce the thought which gave rise to it in the mind. And I'm going to pause again, folks. Absolute, utter nonsense being spewed here right now contradictory counterproductive paradoxical nonsense he's contradicted himself on so many points through this whole thing and it sounds so verbose and nonsensical that it's this kind of teaching that really gives some of these older sciences a bad rap as being called pseudoscience and things of that nature because of this blatant teaching in the paradoxical way here and the blatant teaching of things that are misrepresentations, you see. And you have to wonder, did this guy put this in this book like this on purpose? You see, as many of them often do, and this is an admitted thing by all the occultists, they will often pepper throughout any of their written works like this Things that are not true, that are counterintuitive to the things that they teach, to the true nature of the secrets, to throw people off the path, you see, to misinform and misdirect those at a lower level, because they don't deem them as being worthy of these secrets. So they'll teach them some utter bilge like this to keep them looking in the wrong directions at stuff. And I have to wonder, reading through this now, was that the intention here? Now, keep, keep in mind, though, as we go through this, you'll see he will throw in a salient point here and there where there are some things that really might stand up to muster. But at the same token, much of what's been presented here is utter provable nonsense, right? It's contradictory nonsense. You cannot say that this is true and then the counter of it is also true at the same time. You can't teach in the paradox this way. You see, and that's what they like to do. They like to say they teach in paradoxes because oftentimes they do. And sometimes these paradoxes are understandable because they are talking about polarities, the positive and the negative pole of something, the positive and negative aspect of something. You see, so those types of paradoxes can be an inherently understandable thing. But a paradox like this where he's saying, yeah, this is what we're talking about. And trying to have it both ways, it doesn't stand up to reason or logic, does it? And just something in your spirit tells you something doesn't sound right with this. It's the whole notion of uh, you could smell something burning in the kitchen. Do You know, that idea. Something's burning in the kitchen. Doesn't sound quite right. Something's not quite right with what he's saying here. But, like I said he does throw in some quality information here with the nonsense being presented. And perhaps it's just this this way he's trying to connect these ideas with the physical world that aren't working, that have since been proven untrue from that time. That maybe it's, it's causing this kind of misalignment with modern thought. But let's continue reading at any rate. As our mental horizon broadens, giving a continually increasing capacity for a greater range of vibration, we are thus able, able to polarize with a correspondingly increasing range of vibration of thoughts upon the mental plane. This gives a corresponding increase in our capability or capacity for spontaneous telepathy. Capacity for reading the Akashic records, therefore, depends upon the ability of the brain to respond to the vibration of the mental plane and thus bring those thoughts into our consciousness, or else, when out of the physical body, upon the ability of the substance of the mental body to respond to the vibration of the particular thought. What is herein stated in regards to the law governing the reading of the Akashic Records applies as well to the activity of all the psychic powers upon the mental plane. As the rhythm of mind accumulates with increasing force throughout the body of man, the creative energy is in ever-increasing quantities transmuted into manas, or mind-stuff. Therefore, as is the degree of activity of the rhythm of mind... In the finer energies of the body, so will the quantity of the manas be. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So now we're going to get to the meat of the matter here. All right, he's talking about things like spontaneous telepathy and perhaps the ability to read what he calls the Akashic Records here. This is a type of intuition, okay? This is intuition-based stuff he's talking about. This is stuff where... The rubber meets the road here as far as trying to define what is consciousness, what is this human experience that we have. Is there something beyond this physical world? And this is wherein the proofs may lie. You see, these supernatural aspects of things, this ability for somebody to maybe intuitively recognize something. This is the realm of archetypes and myth representation as well where the human mind can inherently understand a symbol or an archetype or a mythological representation just based upon the unconscious mind. like You could understand it without having the conscious living experience of knowing something about it, you see. It's inherent. It's in the background noise. It's the Akashic Record. It's this uh, collective unconscious, as Carl Jung called it. You see, it's this type of an ideology, a framework, in which we're looking at with this kind of a thing. So this is where I think there may be a little more truth aligned with some of what's been reasoned out here now. Uh, If you throw aside the nonsensical physical descriptions that uh, Mr. Raleigh has given here in the book, you could maybe find some value in what's being presented here now. So let's continue on here. As is the quantity of the manas in the man, I'm going to pause for a second. The manas is the mind energy stuff, uh, just to make that clear. As is the quantity of the manas in the man, so will be the extent of the mental body. The mental body is thus formed out of the physical body by the activity of the rhythm of mind. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, this is counterintuitive to everything else that's been taught by many of these secret society groups and by Raleigh himself. So now he's claiming that the the mental body is built out of the physical body, rather than the other way around. That uh, you know the the foundation of things manifests first in these higher planes and then represents and reflects down here on the lower planes. That's what has been pretty much understood throughout all these different teachings. Now he's teaching the opposite to be true. That first manifestation or original manifestation begins in the physical and reaches up into these corresponding higher worlds. And that's counterintuitive and paradoxical to everything else that's been taught thus far that we've looked at through these various secret society groups. Do you see how it gets convoluted very fast and misconstrued in many ways? So think of it this way. If the mind emanates from the physical and then this higher plane that's two octaves up from us called the the mental plane or the mind plane then manifests a reflection of the physical, then it would be fair to describe the brain as actually being the mind then, right? And it would be fair to describe these physical material world processes as being the source and foundation of consciousness. Do you see what's been done here? This twisting and inverting of what has been accepted before in these old occult sciences and secret teachings and various alchemical sciences, natural sciences. He's reversed the order. It's been inverted And it's been inverted to reflect the hyper-materialist viewpoint, which is counter to nature, to the natural world. It's an artificial contrivance. That's the important point here. So now you see what he's teaching is the reverse, the inverse of what has largely been held by all these secret society groups as true. And this is where our modern thought has been poisoned in a lot of ways from these teachings you see we've been taught to think of a lot of this stuff as being you know nonsensical and invaluable and backward thinking but very much there's value to be garnered in it and perhaps it better describes the way things operate than what our modern science does now, what they've done is they've twisted and inverted these old teachings right here. We, we see Raleigh doing it right here. And they've inverted it. They've reversed it to reflect the idea of the hypermaterialist paradigm here that we live in. The material world being the source of manifestation and the only thing to truly manifest. You see, th- this notion that he gives right here now totally negates everything else he was just talking about. Totally makes it sound silly and nonsensical, you see. Because if he's saying, yeah, the only thing we could really observe is this physical brain, and we think this is where, you know, the the thought and manifestation and consciousness begins, and then it expresses outwards into these other, you know, invisible worlds and manifests there, well, that kind of makes everything they've taught nonsensical you see, because they teach source is from some of these higher planes rather than right here. Uh, So it's counterintuitive and it leads more to the argument that uh, the material world is all there is because it sounds counterintuitive to itself. It's paradoxical, you see, to the point where it's a dangerous paradox and they think that uh, teaching in this way makes them sophisticated. But this is largely why many of these People that follow some of these occult teachings and these old ways of thinking, these secret teachings and secret schools, are largely secular humanists, you see, because of the way these old original teachings have been perverted in this way and represented as nothing more than an old backwards explanation of a physical process here. So those in the modern era have adopted this type of a viewpoint. And that's why we are surrounded by this hyper-materialist viewpoint in the world today. They've taken the old teachings, they've stripped the spiritual idea and original intention from them and inverted it, turned it into a strictly physical paradigm thing, and tried to describe it in that way and try to model it in that way, and try to come up with control systems for it in that way that work to some degree or another. But a lot of it's based upon the inversion of natural law, and it will not stand the test of time. So let's read on. As all thought is moving in accordance with the rhythm of mind, it follows that all thinking builds up the mental body. By increasing the quantity of its substance, the relative fineness of that body, however, depending upon the nature of the thinking and therefore upon the vibratory value of the thoughts which influence and act upon the manas. Remember, therefore, that all thoughts alike build up the quantity of the manas composing the mental body, but the quality of the manas, as well as the nature and value of the mental body, depend upon the nature of the thinking which is constructing that body, The mental type of man is therefore continually consuming the physical body in order that he may have the material form from which to build the mental body. It is for this reason that the men of great intellectual power are invariably men of comparatively weak physical power. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. That is also absolutely not true. You see, that's a stereotype, okay? The nerdy guy. Okay, that's a stereotype of the nerdy guy. Not necessarily true. I, I I know a lot of really smart people that are also physically strong and capable. You see, uh, therefore, that can be seen as nothing more than a disingenuous representation of a stereotype in order to maybe prop up a uh, an idea that Isn't so... sound, perhaps? Let's read on. Those foods which have more of the rhythm of mind will be found to be far more conducive to the increased strength and volume of the mental body than those which have less of that rhythm. It is for this reason that certain foods have been found to be much better for brain workers than others. Raw food is much more conducive to mentality than cooked food because in cooking, the mental principle as well as the astral and also the soul and spirit leave the food so that you eat only the physical principle. As a result, none of the food contains the rhythm of mind when transmuted into energy. The rhythm, being purely physical, must be transmuted into the rhythm of mind by the activity of that rhythm when directed upon the same energy. For this reason, it will be found that raw food will be far more conducive to the rhythm of mind and, therefore, to the volume and strength of the mental body, resulting in a corresponding increased power of the mind than cooked food. It is for this reason that meat is also very undesirable as food for those desiring to secure the best results from a mental standpoint. And I'm going to pause once again there, folks. So now you know why the war is on against meat in this culture today you see why the push for veganism vegetarianism and eat the bugs you see all of these things because in the views of some of these concepts given by many secret society groups the idea of meat is an inferior food source raw foods you see vegetables live foods are the best way to go, according to these people. Now, is there evidence of this? <laughs> Not really. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, if, if you want to go ahead and eat raw foods you, you, you without cooking them, you're going to stand more of a chance of perhaps getting ill <laughs> in a lot of ways from that. But uh, I understand raw vegetables, raw fruits, things like that. They are more nutritive that way. They do retain more of their nutritive values. So there is a little bit of truth in this idea. But at the same token, I think it's kind of been pushed to an extreme in many ways. But let's continue reading here. As the meat is always from an animal which is dead, the rhythm of mind is, of course, absent. Therefore, it can afford only the physical rhythm. Therefore, it must be transmuted before it can be utilized by the mental body. Certain foods are found to be of much more value for the mind than others. This is because their rhythm approaches nearer to the rhythm of mind and thus makes the act of transmutation correspondingly easier than in those having a rate of vibration correspondingly more remote. And I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So what's brain food? What's what's a good source of uh, food to help your brain? Well, fish, right? So, I guess fish are really intelligent. They have all these manifesting thoughts that, uh, you know, maybe correspond to uh, this different idea here. So, do you understand some of the silliness of this? No, not to say that maybe there's a little truth to this. And I always reserve the right to be totally wrong about everything with this stuff. But just sometimes I come across some of these teachings which are so riddled with fault and misinformation within them about what the original teaching behind them was, like this, where I just have to laugh at the silly, nonsensical nature of it. But yet they teach the this to people in these occult fraternities, in these secret schools, these occult brotherhoods, and they think they have this enlightened knowledge that other people don't, this secret information. They know something that you don't. So they know... Even though it's been scientifically proven today, eating fish helps your brain. The omega threes and you know fatty acids and stuff like that in them help uh, to actually uh, keep your brain functioning properly. Because there's a lot to be said about lipids with the brain, uh, various lipids in the brain. That's fat cells. For those who don't know, help with brain function. This is a known commodity in modern science, and, you know, it's been a known commodity from time immemorial. Eating fish and such like that is good for brain function. Uh, so, you know, is, is this the reason? Do they? Does this food really have more corresponding high rates of vibration? Do the the fish think a lot harder than the human being? Are they aligned with the human being And you know, the, these thought manifestations? Uh, is this why it's a healthy food for your mind? yeah, uh, you have to take this stuff with a grain of salt, like I, like I always caution you with this stuff. But uh, every once in a while, I come across something like this, and I just have to laugh at the sheer ridiculousness of it. But here's the concerning part, okay? There's people within these secret brotherhoods who would read this and absolutely take this as gospel, you see, and act upon it in this way. And that's why we have a war against meat. They think that, uh, you know, veganism's better for you. They think that eating the bugs is better for you than eating meat. You see, because you'll you'll you know attain more of the vital energies. So <laughs> that's what they they think here. Uh, but at any rate, I digress from that point. Uh, but this is one of the occult underpinnings of that whole push for vegetarianism and veganism, and I have nothing against vegans or vegetarians. Uh, Oftentimes they have legitimate good reason for choosing that path for themselves, and it's usually some kind of an ethical standard that they hold themselves to, and that's fine. But that type of a diet does not work effectively for everyone. It does not meet the nutritive requirements of everybody out there. So, you know, it's a choice that we all need to make, and I respect that choice. But at the same token, understand, just like everything else in this world, it's been weaponized and turned into an agenda. And there's very spiritual undertones to it, and this relates to that. Uh, So the idea of food, the war against food in our culture, very much hung up on these types of points that are promoted within these secret society groups. But let's continue reading and we'll finish up here. Certain foods are found to be of much more value for the mind than others. This is because their rhythm approaches nearer to the rhythm of mind and thus makes the act of transmutation correspondingly easier than it is in those having a rate of vibration correspondingly more remote. It is this same principle applied to the soul and spirit which provides the real reason for the strict dietary regime imposed upon mystics and other aesthetics going to pause for a moment here folks yes, they impose very strict dietary regimes upon members of the Brotherhood that attain these high standings within the different orders these initiates, these adepts and this is the stated reason you see so is there truth to it or not? Hard to tell right? We need to take it with a grain of salt. Like I said, I don't have a problem with somebody who chooses ethical reasons for becoming vegan or vegetarian or something like that. That's fine. I understand where you're coming from, and I could respect that. But at the end of the day, if you're just doing that to gain occult power, as many of these people in these secret brotherhoods do, there's something wrong with that notion as well. You see, Uh, Because this strips away a portion of the spiritual or ethical manifestation thereof from it. So that being said, it's for the wrong reasons. And intention is everything in this world. So that's the thing. It's a false dichotomy if it's being followed for the wrong reasons. See. And we have a lot of that. And it's being pushed for the wrong reasons, as well. There's this occult underpinning to all of it, you know, as we've discussed before. And this points out the whole principle here. But let's get back to the reading and we'll finish this up. The rhythm of mind may also be established throughout the system by chest breathing. This will aid in the development of the volume of the mental body. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. Yes, the the act of breathing helps the mind. <laughs> the act of breathing helps the brain to function properly, folks. <laughs> Good to know, right? <laughs> but uh, I get what he's saying. This 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 is an exercise in meditation and in meditative meditative practice. This whole chest breathing idea. There's there's a lot to it, uh, and there may be some core of truth to the health benefits of some of these exercises, no doubt. Uh, A lot of this is what things like yoga are based on and various uh, other types of meditation practices and things like that as well. Uh, So, you know, not to take anything away from that, but, you know, it's it's just obvious on the face of it that that breathing is good for the brain. (laughs) So let's leave it at that. Let's continue on and we'll wrap it up. The quality of the mental... Body will at all times absolutely depend upon the character of the thinking as the volume of the mental body depends upon the amount of the thinking it is through the adaptation of the vibration of our mental body to the different rates of vibration of the mental plane that we are able to polarize with that plane and thus to come into contact with their corresponding thoughts through the rhythm of mind It is thus that mental advancement is made possible. All right, folks, and that is the end of Lesson 7. And I know some of you are probably saying, thank goodness. (laughs) Right? Uh, But uh, at any rate, so we see here there's an important correspondence between what they call the mental body and the physical body. One's a reflection of the other in certain ways. Now... The way that uh, the author here has described much of this doesn't stand up to the smell test in many ways, and keep in mind some of the information is dated because this book is over a hundred years old. Uh, so that being the case, uh, maybe you know there were some things that were misconstrued at the time that have since been disproven, and perhaps the author was trying too hard to correlate these ideas of mental or spiritual type ideas to the physical world here and perhaps that related to some of the misinterpretation hereof or maybe he was deliberately misleading as is done often with the secret society groups and these various teachings to keep some of the people off the trail the ones that they view as not being worthy enough you see And that's the vast majority of the lower-level initiates of any of these orders. They're just not worthy enough in the view of those that have reached these higher levels in the fraternities. And the ones that pass on the teachings. And like I said, you always have to take this stuff with a grain of salt. And there is always a a core of some true information that uh, is inherent in many of these things. But at the end of the day, there's always that little bit of poison, and it's all about our discernment within these things. We have to determine for ourselves what holds up and what doesn't, what we find the value to be in and what we don't. So if we don't like a portion of it or it doesn't align with what we think is true or what our experience has shown us is true, well, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you can kind of dismiss that and just keep it in the back of your mind in case something comes along later, which validates or invalidates the claims being made here. And that's that's what this is. At the end of the day, I like to look through these things and see what the claims are that are being made by these people who study these occult teachings, these occult fraternities, the members thereof, the ones that teach this and have brought forward these ideas, and try to utilize them in many ways. The dark occultists who run things in the world very much understand these concepts and use these concepts against the masses. So it's important that we understand what is their motivation, what are their tools, what is it that they believe is going to be their outcome with many of these things, why they act in the way they do. We've all heard what they're doing. I try to explore why are they doing this? Because that's the big question that people always ask. And that's why I like to look in their own books and their own writings like this and give you their words verbatim and maybe add some of my own opinions in there and some of my own observations in. But at the end of the day, it's about understanding who these people are and why they do the things they do. Because everybody will always ask why. Well, why would they do that? They would never do that. No, you would never do that. But you have to understand these people that run things in this world, these dark occultists who run things, they have different agendas and different motivations than the rest of us. And when you come to that realization and understand what is their motivation, what do they believe, why do they believe it, and what do they do to act upon that, then you can see the truth as to what's going on behind the facade That is the curtain of, you know, mass media. So you can understand what's going on behind the scenes with many of these things. And the veil's being ripped away now, folks. This is the time of revelation. All these things used to be done in hidden places in the dark. Now it's all coming to light of day. To be seen by all. And we're seeing more and more of the veil being pulled away every day, aren't we? They're beginning to... uh, espouse so much nonsense all the time that people are beginning to see, hey, they're lying about a lot of things and they have other motivations than what they're telling us. And they're not so good motivations and they're not good for us, you see. So that's what's going on in the world and that's why it's important that we look at a lot of this stuff. We understand the same principles that those dark occultists who run things in this world, these people in positions of power, these social engineers that run things, the things that they believe and act upon. It's important that we understand those principles. Because if we understand what they're doing and and why they're doing it, then maybe we could better counter those things in the future here and coming up. If we could point it out to enough people, make them understand, there's this whole esoteric knowledge stream in and around us all the time, inundating us, that... There's people in positions of power that understand these things and act upon them in secret. That perhaps, if we better understood the same things they're looking at, if we understood the same observation points, then we would be able to see through their facades and maybe garner some value from that and have a better future. That's the whole point in looking at this stuff, all right? It's information. It, it's neutral okay information's neutral it's what's done with the information or the intention behind the information that is the thing that needs to be discerned the most and understood especially when it comes to stuff like this so when we do that when we find this stuff and we're able to discern what's the what's the intention and what's the context then we could have... A larger view of what's truly going on. And that's the whole idea behind the language that is symbology, this esoteric language. It's being able to garner the intention and the context to see what the symbol represents for real, what the intention truly was behind it, what its purpose is. And this is the kind of language that these people use. This is the kind of tools that they use. These are the methods that they use to steer things in society, to engineer society in the way they want it to go. And we've been kept in the dark, very much so in the public, about this stuff. It's been hidden behind closed doors for thousands of years within these mystery schools, these secret society groups, much of this information that they use against us, these secrets of the ages. So that's the whole point here in looking at this stuff, but... Uh, these hermetic principles have stood the test of time. And we see here in this book, he's broken down this hermetic principle of rhythm into various factors here. The rhythm of life, the rhythm of thought. You see the, the rhythm of the mind, the rhythm of mind here. This is the one we went through. And you see how he's essentially presented paradoxes. and He was being disingenuous, I think. He was trying to teach things in both ways. Both ways. Two different ways. Complete opposite ways here to try to make his point. You see. And it leads minds astray. Because if you don't understand what's being said it's it's like a form of gaslighting when they're trying to teach you in paradoxes this way. So they teach you both ends of the spectrum are true when it's actually somewhere in the middle of the spectrum between the two polarities is where we can find usually what actually works and is knowable, rather than looking at the ends, these extreme ends of the spectrum here, to understand things. And that's why they sometimes will teach in paradoxes. It makes the mind confused, you see. And if you're confused, then in order to garner better understanding of a principle, you'll be more easily manipulated by the person who put this teaching forth for you you understand that's why they do that because if you try to understand something and they're telling you it's this way and but it's you know it's the complete opposite of that too and how do you believe that what, what do you believe then what do you act upon which way do you go with it then you see if they're teaching you the paradoxical way of things both paradoxical polarities of different subjects which they admit to doing you even write in this book It's been admitted. They teach in paradoxes. Well, this is why. Because then they have more control over you with this information. See, they've entrusted you with some portion of uh, a kernel of truth of this type of information. But they still want to make sure that you do what they want with it, you see. So they'll teach you in paradoxes so you don't know which direction to go with it or where to, to maybe find the next phase of learning involved with it. And that way they could steer you wherever they see necessary to get the result they want from you. And that's how these secret society groups operate. It's all about control and power all the way up and down the chain. You see, they lie to their own members. They lie to the public. They lie to the profane, as they call us, the outsiders. So that's the whole point here. Uh, And many of these teachings that have been written down, put in written form here, are designed to confuse They do that on purpose, and that's what makes it so hard to muddle through a lot of these things because you find a lot of nonsensical stuff, and then you think, well, this is utter garbage. But in truth, there may be a very valuable philosophical truth hidden in there somewhere. So it's important to use discernment and to still look at these things, find the value in it, because all writings have value of some sort, and it's just a matter of filtering through and finding what is the proper value therein. Sometimes it's hard to navigate through this stuff. I understand that. But that's why I offer my observations and opinions on things, too, because I've looked at this stuff for a very long time now and analyzed it in many of these ways to try to Figure out what's true and what's not, what's accurate and what's not, to get to good information. Uh, so that being the case, every now and again, we'll find something that I could just laugh at <laughs> like that and say, you know, that's, you know, a total misrepresentation. But uh, at any rate, uh, you know, it's, it's still important that we explore these topics and avenues of thought because it's not the way we're taught to think in the modern world. So if we look at things with an open mind and are able to observe things from these different types of vantage points, we could have a better understanding of things going on in the world. And that's where we're at today. But anyway, I want to thank you all for tuning in tonight. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now.
1: Come with me.